Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Howdy, Stella. Hello there, Sasha. I'm feeling a little bit shy today because you're interviewing me. Oh, are you? I sure am. So Stella is going from her typically uh, exuberant, opinionated self to like a little bit of stage fright, (laughs) which is unusual for us to see. But yes, today's a special episode because I'm essentially interviewing you. We're going to talk about what your teen is trying to tell you, which is your new book. Yes. And uh, this is all about, my understanding is it's kind of like a DIY manual for parents who are a little uh, uncertain. Maybe they're lacking confidence. They just think, you know, if I could get the right therapist, my my kid would feel much better. But you have a different view on it. Like, can you yeah. can you talk about that? Like, what was the motivation kind of for this well, book? You've kind of hit the nail on the head, so I must have bored you enough over the last couple of years <laughs> about it, because it is that. What it is, is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a psychotherapist for years and years now, decades, and, uh, well, more than a decade, certainly. And I, I, I love giving therapy. I love working with teenagers. I, I connect with them. They're my special group. They're my favourite. Yeah. You know I mean, I really do. And I like working with parents as well. And what I kind of came to realise, especially in the last few years, I think there's a combination of all sorts of things that are going on. There's a diagnosis creep. There's a professionalization of parents. There's a pathologization of ordinary human distress. And the combination of all that is an awful lot of teenagers are being sent to therapy. And I would have... I actually am going back on myself and, uh, you know, years ago I used to say, oh, they have this rule of thumb. The first time you ask, should somebody go to therapy? It's often a sign that perhaps you should go to therapy. I'm not saying that anymore. Mm. I'm pulling right back on that. I've seen too many teenagers go to therapy and one, we work together and we find some strategies. We get some understanding. There's a nice collaboration and they do well. However, there's other secondary impacts that make me quite nervous, which is why I wrote the book. And the secondary impacts would be it can kind of divide the family because the teenager has suddenly gone to another adult. And so the parent feels a little bit disempowered because the teenager is like, I'm dealing with this with my, my therapist. I don't need you. So it's creating a division inadvertently, but it's creating yeah. a division with parents and teenagers at the exact time when they should be leaning in and getting deeper and getting a bigger and better relationship. There's a, a, another party has come in and this is party is mm. an oracle. I remember one parent. This was a real moment. I came out to the parent and I said, I said something to the teenager and um, the, the parents said, I, I know you said it. I've been saying it for years, but when you said it, <laughs> it really landed. And I thought, yeah, th- this is lovely and it's also tragic. Yeah. Because I think um, parents are the most important. They care the most. They love the most. As Lisa Marciano says, they're the world expert on their children. Mm-hmm. And we therapists are well-meaning, but inadvertently getting in the way of a very precious relationship with our therapy. So I'm not saying go to therapy, but I'm saying maybe too many teenagers are too easily going to therapy when actually it would be better if the parents just read up a little bit, maybe watched a few YouTubes, maybe read my book or read around (laughs) the subject and empowered themselves to think, "I I can handle this. Almost like when you were having difficulty and the kid was potty training or when you're having difficulty with siblings you read about it you you upskilled a bit in the area and you were yeah. able for it and we're not doing that with teenagers because frankly as a parent of teenagers I think we're terrified we're terrified yeah. of mental health issues in, and our teenagers so I thought yeah I need to write a book that will help parents help their teenagers and that was the the grand plan oh that's so nice and I mean it, it's not 
I'm thinking it's probably more so than just helping their teenagers because when you feel like you have some tools, you feel stronger, you feel more capable and more confident as a parent. And like what you're saying about this division of labor, I hear this a lot. Like when a family has a therapist in their child's life, that can be a big relief. But also what happens is the parents say, well, I don't really think that I should bring this up with my daughter because she's talking to her therapist about that. And it's like, well, actually, no, the the parent-child relationship is always going to be the most important one. And if you can broach that subject, you'll be much better off and so will your child. So like, I really resonate with what you're saying. And and further than that, so that's such a good point that the, the pa- parents are staying away and the teenager mm. is saying back off. And this is not our grand plan. <laughs> this is not yeah. what we want at all, but it's inadvertently a kind of a secondary impact of the, so the, I see the good work happening between me and a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then I see the disempowering of the parent and I think, this isn't in the grand plan. This isn't great. And then I see the, the kind of the teenager a little bit dismissive of the parent and seeing me as this great kind of, like I say, the oracle. And then I start thinking of triangulation and I go into this in the book where the triangulation, it's, it's, it's you know, there's it's an old kind of concept from psychology, but it's a, a difficult concept. It's mm-hmm. not good. And effectively, one person is the saviour, which could be the therapist in this context. One person is the victim, which could be the teenager. And one person is the persecutor. That's the classic Cartman's kind of triangle. Yeah. And it's not always that way, but it's it's very destructive if it is that way. And so if I'm considered the saviour, immediately the teenager is looking at the, you know, if only my parents understood this. And I was there over the years going, yeah, at first, you know, you'd see parents, teenagers, and you think they're lost and lonely and they, they, they need an, an adult figure. And I'm happy to be that adult figure. Over the years, as we've more and more sent teenagers and more and more to therapy, I've thought, I'm being cast in a role here. And actually, the parent is a very loving and engaged parent. And I shouldn't be the saviour. They should be the saviour. Or if there is, should there even be a saviour? Because that's disempowering the teenager, that there needs to be a saviour from this persecuting parent. All of it is wrong. So when I realised this triangulation process is something to be very wary around, I realised I'm part of the problem. And more and more, I became interested in talking. I remember a well-known therapist saying, I work with the parents more than the teenagers. And I was like, do you? And they said, Mm -hmm. yeah, because of these type of dynamics, it's more empowering to work. And I thought that's very interesting. And I became more and more interested in this and thinking, actually, maybe it's maybe parents. And I, I, I did study this a lot in my first book, Cottonwool Kids, the disempowerment of parents, her parents. I was one of them. We felt like blithering fools. I had my first baby and I felt like I'm a fool who will hurt my child if I don't get it right. Mm-hmm. Between mm-hmm. sleeping and feeding and breastfeeding. and Oh, my God. It, yeah. it, there was so much that could go wrong. And that set the tone. And then I studied it with Cottonwool Kids and I realized that up until around about the 1980s, they had this great phrase, mother knows best. And basically mother's intuition rule the day. Now, I'm not saying that was perfect. Mm-hmm. We've gone from mother's knows best to parents are a fool and they need, they mm. need classes. Mm-hmm. So I know co- people could easily say, Stella, you're contradicting yourself. You're a therapist and you're saying maybe you don't go to therapist. And then you're also saying empower yourself, but then you're giving them a book. So I'm trying. <laughs> no, I know. I'm very open to being very highly criticized, but I'm used to that. And also, I think it is a complicated position we've got into. We do want yeah. to reach out to teenagers who are lost and lonely. And I mean, something I've learned about you is when you are feeling like a struggle with something, you like to read and educate yourself to feel better. Just like you said, when I studied this for my book, I realized, you know, so and so. So I think it's totally appropriate to say, you know, this book might help you, you know, re-engage in the parenting process. Like this will help you feel more competent rather than this book is outsourcing your power to Stella O'Malley, the author. No, you're saying like, you can do it, parent. You can do it. (laughs) Well, I think a key part of my own kind of progress as, as a human emotionally was that like, as you've heard, 
probably too many times. You know, in my 20s, I went to therapists and I didn't get very far. And then I read some self-development books and I did a personal development course. And I did. I took big leaps of this is how we work. Oh, oh, this happens to every. Oh, everybody is freaking out in these ways. It was a revelation for me. And so I can see why I naturally, as the years progressed, thought, well, other people can go that way. It's not. And then I did. Funnily enough, I ended up studying to be a therapist and I found a great therapist. And I thought, yes. oh, this is a lovely relationship. I can see the value in it. But I was very late coming to a good therapeutic mm. relationship. So yeah. that made a difference. You say something um, in, in a piece that you sent me about the book where you talked about like... Um, you said between the rough ages of 10 and 20, there's a reckoning to be had with life. During this time, t- children move from believing the good guy always wins to coming to the sharp and horrifying realization that terrible things happen to good people. And you, you just talk about how adolescents have to become disillusioned, actually, in order to grow up. Yeah. Can you talk about that? This is a big thing for me, a big understanding of why so many teenagers are distressed and you know Carl Pickard the psychologist said adolescence is there to break the spell of childhood and we are arguably giving children a better childhood maybe than ever before it's certainly incredibly magical this the the Santa Claus and the Easter and the parties and the days out and the holidays there were nothing like my own childhood and many people are having incredibly exciting and magical the the films and the the fantasy and the even you know going to harry potter and all that sort of stuff it does feel like it's very high end as a child and i think parents bend over backwards entertaining their kids like when i was a kid we pretty much had to entertain ourselves but parents these days are like doing everything in their power to make their child child's childhood as fun as humanly possible so sorry keep yeah, going well i think they are and i think it's actually working they're having amazing childhoods yes and i think we didn't have as good childhoods but therefore we didn't fall from a cliff with disappointment when reality kicked in between 10 and 20, because between 10 and 20, roughly in and around those ages, you come to a more developed understanding of life. And it's a little bit horrifying. And I can see why people in previous generations turn to religion quite intensely in adolescence, because there's this extraordinary realisation of some really good people are homeless. Some really good people have really awful lives. And some really horrible people have kind of got it easy and are very good looking and very popular. Now, though, to to understand that, like you really lost your innocence once you understand that. That is mm. the loss of innocence. And it generally hits in and around early adolescence. I know in, in Ireland, for example, at around about 13, you, you go into the equivalent of high school, secondary school. And they go in in September and by January, I notice with my working with teenagers, the depression hits and they're like, this is really tense. This is really nothing like it. I thought it was going to be a cool teen with lockers and maybe a boyfriend, you know, a gang of friends that I might be going on sleepovers with and we'd probably make funny TikToks and it's... I, they have yes. this image, mm-hmm. which why mm-hmm. wouldn't they have? Because they have this gorgeous, magical childhood. And then they roll into a, a pretty, a brick wall of reality because adolescence, while childhood is really fun, I actually think, I genuinely think adolescence is a good deal worse than yeah. it would have been for us. So we had less magical childhood from what I can gather from what I can study and I really 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 try to analyze this I believe I've come to the conclusion that we're ha- we're giving children better childhoods but their adolescence is much more stressful it's um, like we we wanted to grow up yeah. we wanted to get older and I mm. think we see a lot of kids today that are terrified of growing up I think you're so right I I, I think they are terrified I don't think we entice them to grow up I think we've sold them mm. childhood We've told them that it's the most amazing thing. And then we don't quite know how to handle adolescence. We, we, I don't think we've really kind of engaged in how to handle the fact a child goes from an asexual being 
to being a sexual being. We we don't know what to do with that. I kind of go into it in the book, but I can see how we're kind of very ill at ease. I don't know what to do with the fact that 13 and 14 and 15 year olds are becoming sexual. I don't think any of us really know yeah. how to handle that. And mm-hmm. we, we know it's happening. So we kind of look away. We're very in control in childhood. We know how to look after them. We know how to provide everything they need. And then there's a slight panicky feeling of around. They don't seem to be happy in adolescence. I don't know what to do. Um, what's wrong with them? As opposed to actually, honestly, you're, you know that phrase from being woke, you know, if you're if you're not a little bit distressed by life, you're probably a bit asleep or insensitive. Like mm. life is hard and mm. it's very anxious making. And I think these kids, they come into teenage years and they suddenly go, oh, my God, this is nothing like what life has been. And it apparently not going to get any better. It's just going to get harder and more and more tense. And so no wonder they don't want to grow up. But I don't think, I think this is the first generation that can presume they're going to be poorer than their adults, than their parents. They presume life's going to be a bit harder than their parents' life. Will they get a mortgage? There's a huge amount of lack up until really the last generation or so. Everybody presumed that they were going to be more wealthy than their parents more sophisticated than their parents, more educated than their parents, more kind of in a better position. Mm. And now there's a strange kind of reckoning around that. That's not that's not so definite anymore, which is frightening. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing I did in the book that I described (laughs) me opening my first bank account as a kid, mm. and it was really lovely. It was a really lovely day. I went down with my mom, and I signed my name, put in the fiver, and I was so proud. And I felt really, you know, I was becoming a big girl. It was a big deal. I was becoming big, you know yeah. what I mean. And I yeah. remember signing my name like this is my signature, and I tried to do the same with my children, and it was. It was like a Kafka-esque nightmare. <laughs> we went over the road, which is just across there. So it's very easy. Every single person in the office knew us. We were in the credit union, which is, I presume you have equivalent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were to sign and give them both an account. We had money. And we, it, it just, we needed this. We needed that. We needed two bills. We needed all sorts of information. So we went back and got the information. We came back. Oh, no, we need actually permission from their school, which was crazy, but mad. <laughs> So we had to go and get a letter from the school. It ended up being four or else five visits. And by the end of it, my kids were bored out of their wits, completely uninterested, no vibe of empowerment, no vibe of I can't wait to one day be coming in and taking my money out. It was an adult scenario that they'd lost any sort of interest or, or pride or looking for. It was all pressure. I thought, mm. no wonder these kids aren't looking forward to look. Get, it was just a, a very understandable, all about admin and money laundering, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It was necessary, <laughs> yeah. but it was awful, and I think it's yeah. reflective of children's introduction to adult life these days. It's awful. And it in therapy, I do hear this. Like I hear about kids who say you know, why would I want to be an adult? It seems like stressful and a lot of paperwork, like a lot of bureaucracy, you know what I mean? And it's, uh, it's hard because the incentives of empowerment and freedom and autonomy, like don't seem nearly as interesting, I think, to kids in, in who are growing up today. And that's, I think, a kind of a shocking realization when we, we parents realize they don't actually want to grow up Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why not? Because I was mad to grow up. And I, I, I think, you know, that phrase failure to launch, I, I talk a bit yeah. about that. There's a lot of kids who are not thriving once they reach adulthood. And so I gave a whole chapter to what I called was the kind of the, the milestones that adolescents need to mm. learn to become an emotionally mature adult and so just yeah. like toddlers and the our babies need to go through certain milestones and toddlers mm-hmm. they need to learn how to eat and ride their bike and speak and all the things and then children need to learn how to read and write and it's all milestone you know what I mean and stage yeah. and age development and the very same has to happen in adolescence and when I realized that I was like oh what why didn't I know that 
And that, that, yeah. that, it gave me a much easier perspective on understanding teenagers. It was like, oh, so some, for example, one of the milestones that you have to get through, it's kind of a task, a developmental task that you get through in and around between the ages of 10 and 20 to become an emotionally mature adult is to learn how to maintain the relationships. So like before, like, you know, when you're a young child, you just you're friends with whoever likes Lego because you like Lego. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. really amazing. Then you're friends with whoever's sitting beside you or playing beside you because you're told to. And it's still fairly basic. And then it gets a little bit more complicated, a bit more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And then it's starting to develop friendships and relationships. And these are not easy because mm-hmm. a huge amount of the work I've done with teenagers has been utter disappointment with their friendships in life deep yeah deep, deep disappointment because basically the world has told them your friends they've watched frozen was <laughs> all these friends were going to be these superheroes in their life and they were just going to hang out together and look out for each other and then their friends aren't quite and are often kind of maybe stabbing them in the back because they're trying to find their own way this is devastating to teenagers and I think we underestimate how disappointing it is when their friends aren't great. And then yeah. it, it kind of dawns on us in our 20s. OK, so you have a friend for this and a friend for that. And you can't ask everything from and it was all a sham and you should never have been sold this idea. That there's going to be these fabulous, perfect friends. Mm. No more than like my generation was sold down the river being told that we were going to have this amazing man who was going to do everything for us. What if I have an amazing man who does everything for me? It was was oversold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. And I think the nature of friendships has also changed a lot. Because I think when I was young... I mean, I didn't have perfect friendships, but I definitely felt that intimate, deep bond with certain friends that we just would like spend the whole summer together, almost inseparable. And you felt like this person's got my back. And I do think the nature of friendships has changed a lot due to largely just social media kind of taking over the, the avenue of relationship building. And to, to complicate matters, and this like is something you touch on in your book, the, the teenage brain is not fully developed so th- they're both naive and not able to understand long-term consequences and unable to regulate their emotions. Can can you give the example, the cake metaphor, oh, yeah. like looking at the cake? <laughs> I always think, especially teenage girls, but both. The teenage brain, it's like an unmade cake in a, in the in the oven. And you look at it and it's glistening. It looks perfect. It looks really... And it's puffy, right? Yeah. It's the right height. <laughs> and you're like, look at it, it's perfect. And then you look inside and it's a mush of ingredients. It's completely unmade. That's almost how the, some, some teenagers come across. They're, they look like they are completely on it that they are Mm. absolutely sophisticated thinkers and they give the impression that they're sophisticated thinkers. They have the language, they have the kind of the sense about them. But actually, when you look inside and you and I would know that when you would, there's a kind of a lost little kid going, oh, no, where's my blankie? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And then you realise it's literally, uh, it's an unmade, the, the teenage brain is is a, a half-made construction site. The brain yes. is literally... And when I, you look at the brain science around that, and I go into this, you realise that literally consequences are underdeveloped. They haven't yeah. learned... That literally, that part of the brain is not actually developed. And yeah. attraction kind of... What's the word? Um, the risk analysis ability is really mm. impaired because all they see is the good thing. The good thing is really kind of neon... And really overdeveloped. Yeah. The consequences is just this tiny little nub that is like a disclaimer at the bottom of the commercial or something. <laughs> it's a tiny little thing there, and it hasn't grown. And as the yeah. as the brain develops, and it just complexifies in the teenage years. By the time they're in their early mid twenties, consequences would have grown. And so yes. they'll be able to weigh up decisions. And when you realise that, I think when you look at the actual brain and look at the teenage brain, you think, oh, my God, they're playing with half a deck. And we're, yeah. we're, we're presuming, because they can speak like us, that they're playing with a full deck. They're not. <laughs> Literally not mm-hmm. playing with the full deck of cards that we are. 
And I think that makes us, when you read about that, I think people feel a lot more compassionate. Yeah, that's one of your tips. And I think like that's such an important one to keep in mind. Like, you know, be aware of the half-formed teenage yeah. brain. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of gives parents a little bit of context as to like what's going on and why they're acting. You say something like sometimes they seem literally crazy, but they're not. They're yeah. just, they're working on it. And another <laughs> tip you give is don't get in the way of a teenager who's in the middle of learning a lesson, which yeah. feels like it's related to this half-cooked brain thing. Yeah. What, what's, what's that tip about? Well, we knew when we were first raising children, and it seemed a bit simpler in the childhood years, the early childhood, we knew that when they were tying their laces and they were doing it wrong, that it was very inappropriate to jump in and start tying their lace because they'd never mm. learn. And it's the mm. same with the bike and it's the same with the swimming. You had to let them find their way slowly and clumsily along the way. Now, when you look at that, you realize they have tasks of adolescence. So they might, for example, classic one would be learning how to communicate with more than one person. They can do one and one friendships, but they can't handle when there's three in the room or four in the room. They just, they can't quite handle it. Mm. And you, you know, we could, we adults could jump in and rather than realizing they're learning and they, they can only learn by practicing, they can only learn by kind of getting it a little bit wrong, then getting it wrong and then getting it a little bit right and then getting it a little bit right. Yeah. And if we're too domineering, we th- those kids won't, won't learn the lesson. They, and it feels incredibly attractive because I am a parent of teenagers. I know the feeling of I've suddenly jumped in. I thought, I shouldn't be in here. I shouldn't be doing this for them. I should back the hell off. For example, when they are late for school, letting them navigate that they're late for school and rather than writing the letter, letting them navigate that difficult, awkward situation. All that, they need to learn that. And it's tricky and hard and really easy for us to jump in and help them. Yeah. You you also talk about communication um, and you say, you know, scale the wall of silence. What does that mean? What is the wall of silence and how does one scale it appropriately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big grandiose. Scale the wall of silence. Yeah. What it is, is I'd say a lot of parents will, will identify with this. Often the teenage bedroom can be like uh it's like almost the lair that the parents can't get past the door of the bedroom because of it feels like, you know, the electric wire, the electric mm. <laughs> fence. That the barbed wire with the electricity. And yeah, all. But, but if there's no wire, it's just an electric fence that they can't quite get past <laughs> because it's so hostile from the teenager. Mm. Don't come into my room. And I do think that that needs to be addressed. If you're to kind of, if you realize we've broken down, we're not connecting, my kid is unhappy and needs a hand and I care about them more than anybody else and I'm going yeah. to try and help them. And it, it you know, it's, it's, it takes time. I often say that phrase, you know, it's like throwing pebbles in a barrel. You're just doing it slowly but surely. It's This is not something that's going to be scaled in a day or, or in a week or in a month. This is take time. But you could think to yourself, right, I need to start learning how to be in this bedroom in a pleasant way. And what you might start by coming in and maybe just coming in with a cup of tea and saying, oh, I made you a cup of tea and you walk out like it's no you're not asking for a chat. You're not giving them a Hollywood style inspirational Mm. speech and you're definitely not tidying the room because. Oh, yeah. Talk more about that. Why not? Why shouldn't you go in there and start arranging the bookshelf stuff? We parents, we do it reflexively. We walk in thinking I'm just going to be nice and easy and loving. And then we kind of pick something up, we start folding it, and then we realise there's a towel, and suddenly our whole demeanour changes, and we kind of can't help but say, could you not just pang it up? Like, look at the same yeah. as I don't know whether it's clean or dirty. And you've completely gone into a domestic mm, tension. So what you have to do is almost put blinkers on your, like a horse, and not look at the mess, not pick up the the dirty rancid cup that has something going out of it. Not see it because you're going in on a vibe. Just for this, imagine I'm just talking about a very a lonely kid who's in their room, just lost in their room. And you're trying to get in and you know they don't want you. They're hostile and they don't mm. want you because they, they see you almost as the enemy or certainly somebody who doesn't care and understand. 
and you're trying to come in and say, I do, and you do it really slowly, maybe you might give them something, say, oh, look, I, you might even send them to you as you're walking into the room. You say, I, th- I saw this TikTok, I thought you'd like it. And it's a funny little TikTok about a kitten. It's nothing. But yeah. you walked into the room to send it. And you say, mm-hmm. cute, isn't it? And you walk back out. You're not asking. Mm-hmm. You don't look for a return. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're just giving a bit of ease and gentleness. And you might do it again two days and you might do it again. And they could say, you're coming in all the time. It's really bugging me. And it's like, I know. I just know you're upset. And I know, mm. I know you don't madly want me, but I just want to show you my kind of warmth and my solidarity. Mm. And then you back mm-hmm. the hell out. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes. You don't jump yes. in with a speech. It's it's hard to do, but I think it means a lot. I remember when I was a kid, I've probably, I've told you everything, Sasha, but <laughs> I'll bore you again. When I was a kid, did I tell you this about the, my mom and throwing the bar of chocolate? Oh, tell this story yeah. again, actually. I wanted, I was trying to remember this the other day yeah. because it came up in a context. But yeah, tell the I was story. In my, I was in my room and I was literally pacing. So like I was like a tiger in, in a zoo, literally pacing the room. Yeah. It was a small yeah. room, but I was pacing. So that's how. And my mother just opened the door and she, she like she was throwing meat to the lion, she threw a bar of chocolate. It was a Snickers, but it, it would be, um, would have been a marathon back then. And she threw a Snickers across, and it sailed over the from the door into the into my um, onto my bed. And I was like, "What?" And then she went back out, and it, it was lovely. It was just a lovely mm. thing to do. It was I didn't expect it, and she just did it just purely out of. I can see you're in pain. I've no idea what to do. I know me and you can't speak. And it's just a loving thing to do. And it always stuck in my mind. I never even mentioned it to her, but it, it, I got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's all. There was, she wasn't asking for anything back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. It was just a, a, a gesture of support, a gesture of love, a gesture of cheering you up. I mean, sometimes, I think sometimes parents put a lot of pressure on themselves to do like what you say, like don't be a motivational speaker or like a co- like sports coach. I think parents think they have to deliver this like Disney yeah. speech. Yeah. But actually you're saying the pebbles in a barrel, like just over time, little gestures of love go a long way. I think that's a really special story. Or the other lesson is start a food fight with your children. Throw food at your children. I think Chocolate. that's the lesson. <laughs> Chuck it. Just knock them in the head with the chocolate bar. <laughs> yeah. I do, I do think that we, I do it myself and, you know, my kids say, stop therapizing me. Is therapizing a word? Mm. I don't know. But they can say yeah. it to me regularly. I would be the worst. If I was a parent, oh my God, I would be the worst at this. I keep myself I'm, a pain with that. Oh. And I'm, I actually have a voice. If you it just oh, a parent, a parentizing or therapizing yeah. voice. And what it is is that my one of my kids might be just starting to say something, and I go straight into, "Well, would you try this? Or have you thought this? Or a straight into solutions?" And we know that if your partner mm. did that, you'd eat their head off. So yes, only started. I give a kind of a five point plan around that. Again, not trying to be patronizing and not trying to kind of pathologize or professionalize things, but just as tips of if communication is your issue, be aware communication is your issue. And here's a few tips around communication. And the the first thing about the communication is you, you kind of we all know that if you come in and you're in a really bad humor, 
and you just start giving it all. You don't want people, you don't want your best friend to say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried the other? Yeah. It's yeah. really irritating. And we parents do it faster than anybody else. Well, will I go into mm. Mr. Burke and tell him? Will I? And it's like, no, no, mm. no, you don't. And generally mm. in that kind of five point plan, I point out, presume you don't know the full story. Because it's normal and natural for adolescents to have a bit of privacy, to hold a little bit back and also to be yeah. in their half made brain a little bit garbled and not not give you a vital piece of information <laughs> that Oof. would actually give you a bit. So there's quite a good few reasons why you won't have the full story. So you could see the solution as blindingly obvious. And mm. I could say, I wonder, do you wonder, do you know it all? I, it's not necessarily. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, we can be so sure of the solution. And then me and you know, Sasha, in the therapeutic room, you realize it's more complicated. There's Always. Few layers. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And it takes a long time, a long time of throwing pebbles in the barrel to get the full story. And I would bet that if you do kind of show those incremental gestures, you'll get more and more pieces of the drama with the friend or the thing that's happening at school, like over time. Yeah, one thing I think I noticed from studying this book, and I'd say you've seen it as well, the anxiety that has come over teenagers, it does feel like it's, I give a whole kind of chapter, not only to anxiety, but a whole section to fear and rigid thinking, because fear and rigid thinking is is so big these days, if you follow yeah. me. It feels like there's a lot of reasons why, but social media is huge. COVID hasn't helped. Mm. All the emphasis on professionalizing problems hasn't helped. The medicalization of all the problems hasn't helped. The combination of it has made for a very frightened generation. I can see yeah. why. It's, it is a nerve wracking to feel your social media presence is being judged at all times. It is pretty nervy being a teenager. I don't think they're having it easy. No, and, and especially what you mentioned earlier about the kind of milestones, like part of what teenagers are supposed to do is branch out and start taking risks a yeah. little bit, being a little rebellious or trying things that are a bit on the dangerous side. And if you are concerned, and teenagers are also super self-conscious, right? So if you're concerned that any decision you make is going to be scrutinized by like 2000 peers at any moment, Good luck with that risk-taking behavior that you're actually supposed to do. So yeah, the, the anxiety and the fear is just compounded on so many levels. And I don't know if we can understand what it's like to be a teenager these days. Like, it's really complicated. And you talk about that. You say, like, remember how hard it is to be a teenager these days. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you think that we miss it? Because even as a therapist who works with teens... Every now and then something will happen and I'll, I'll realize like, oh my God, I don't really understand how hard this is. I'm not a teenager now, so I can't know. I think we do miss it. I do think that it is harder than it has been. And I don't think it was easy when I was a kid. I don't yeah, think it was easy yeah. to be a teenager, but I actually think it's harder now. I think the emphasis on their looks, when let's face it, they can be quite awkward looking, you know, their teeth can be big or their shoulders can be big, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Huge yeah. emphasis on vanity. And, you know, vanity is the royal road to anxiety anyway. I think, I think I, I'm, I'm very concerned about the level of emphasis on their looks, on their body, on their, their kind of, their attractiveness, the, for boys and girls or do you feel like that's more difficult for girls it's more difficult for girls but mm. you know when I was a kid I suppose m many girls were vain boys were often quite unselfconscious the odd boy was but a lot of them if you were in the kind of realms of the 70% of you were reasonable looking you weren't mm. thinking all that much about it but the boys have followed the girls into worrying about their looks rather than the other direction Rather than the girls mm. following the boys, the boys seem to have gone into the, the kind of the girls. So there's a lot of consciousness around their body and their weight and their whether they're strong enough as boys, whether they're pretty enough as girls. And I, I really think it's a really heavy mantle for them to bear. And I think they're obsessed with their looks. I've, I've seen it with my own kids. It started with 
you know, they were completely unselfconscious about their looks. And it just creeps up because every time you turn on Snapchat, every time you turn on TikTok, looks, 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 looks. How you look, all mm. these faces, all this. Where I know I'm very frightened for them. I, I really think this is a real issue that contributes constantly to anxiety. A kind of feeling of I'm, I'm not presenting well enough. It's a branding. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but I think there are some teenagers as they get older or maybe as they kind of put the puzzle pieces together in their mind, they actually start to shy away from social media and kind of get off of it. Like, I think that might be the new movement before, you know, hopefully before there's a lot of damage done. Do you, do you see that or do are you hearing that from parents that by the time the kid is like 17 or 18, they're like, I don't really use social media anymore. Yeah. I hope we're right. I know there is a contingent who are definitely saying that. There's a whole other contingent who are getting lips done at 19 and 20. You know yeah, what I mean? So yeah, there is, yeah, yeah. There's two different directions it's going. And again, it's it's polarised, but it's I love this idea of people. I, I kind of I wonder what will be happening, you know, in the next generation. Yeah. Will we look at kids online and think it's the equivalent of children in the 50s smoking cigarettes? Yes, yes. And we'll be I say, wonder too. How did we let those kids have such free and easy access? And I, I, I write when I write about it, I'm very kind of I try to put in practical ideas around have tech free rooms, have tech free times. Do you know what mm, I mean? I would mm-hmm. a full understanding that we are all addicted. I'm as addicted as you know what do, what do they say? Every time you put down your phone, there's a multi billion industry trying to get you to pick it up. There really is. Oh yeah. It's yeah, I believe it. And I think I do think we can see it in these kids that they they're in this social experiment that effectively social media took off in the last 10, 12 years. And it's really impacted them. And I, I don't think sadly, I don't think in a very good way. Now, I know teenagers have loads of opportunities that they've that we didn't have. But I do feel that there is a, a kind of a crisis going on mentally mm. for a lot of mm-hmm. them, even when they have a lot to kind of be thankful for I. I do feel awfully sorry for them. I think a lot of them are in really quite deep distress. Yeah. And maybe because, I mean, I hear this so many times from parents, like, I don't know how to get their screen time into a better place. And you talked about screen free nights or something. Can you maybe talk about some of the practical tips you share in the book? Right. Yeah. I I'm not as ambitious as screen free nights. Screen free hours. OK. OK. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you no know, screens until maybe eight in the morning. You know what I mean? So or no screens in the kitchen. So if you're going Ooh. to be if you're going to have to take a text or if you're going to have to send a message, you have to leave the kitchen because we're not doing screens in the kitchen or for the no, whole family. You mean like a family wide policy? It's like That's remember great. when smoking, everybody had to go outside and a huge, yeah. it, it really reduced smoking. So I, I'm very pro no screens in, in the kitchen, for example, or no screens in, in the bedrooms for that reason, that it becomes a bit more of a hassle. Or I, I'm, I'm also realistic. Uh, so no screens in the bedrooms after 10 o'clock or no, you, you know what I mean? That you, you have kind of you pick one or two rules and you say, this is what I'll go with. You know that you know that book that what's called Micro Habits of the Power of Tiny Gains. So you're just trying to mm. just just a tiny bit. So you pick one rule. Which could yeah. be, okay, no tech between 10 o'clock at night and 8 in the morning. I'm not doing anything else, but that's all. Or 11 at night. And, you know, you give it easy. You don't try and do something really hard at the beginning. Or even no tech in the kitchen and nothing else. I'm not going to touch anything else. I'm just going to go for kitchen. And you wait until you've got that before you go to yeah. the next one. Because it's so, so, so hard. It really is. For it's sure. so hard. For sure. Yeah, and when it comes to like behavior change, something I, something I find really interesting and have studied, people think it's like a matter of discipline or motivation, but it's not. It's actually a matter of setting up habits. your environment, setting up your system, setting up your habits in small incremental changes that in the long term make an impact. So I, I love that idea of like pick something very manageable rather than trying to overhaul the entire life of your family on tech. Because and you have to do it as well. So it's kind of like digital yeah. hygiene. I, I, I know that's probably not the right phrase, but it's like a healthy attitude to your digital world. I do think you have to kind of bring in an analogy with even if they're 18, you wouldn't allow your 18 year old to drink vodka at the breakfast table. You wouldn't allow your your 17 year old to 
eat McDonald's all day every day. You have a certain healthy attitude that you just created. It's the household habit. So the household habit to vodka, the household habit to to fried food or fast food, Mm -hmm. the household Mm -hmm. habit to tech, that it has Mm -hmm. to be part of the same attitude. It's it's no different than, let's say, alcohol or fast food. It's great. It's fabulous. It's lovely. But you can't have it all the time because it will ruin your life. And I yeah. don't think we've quite realised that it is in that realm. It's not like... It, yeah, not 100%. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the research is starting to bear that out. So I think over time, parents will have kind of like more leverage to say, hey, this is a wellness issue. Yeah. This is like a health. a being a well-rounded person issue, health issue, mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you can you talk about like communication styles? Because I know this is part of like one of the challenges you think families face. Like they don't consider the different ways people get feel heard or feel yeah. appreciated or whatever. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, I go into that quite early because I think an awful lot of people um, they, they don't quite know what to do about the communication in the family because it's gone wrong and it's often gone wrong. You know, between let's say the father and the daughter, it's not. It's not necessarily just the teenager Mm. that styles are clashing with each other so you know let's say um my husband is very direct and he's very straight so the direct kind of person what they say matters so they mean what they say and they say what they mean and they give the Mm. headlines and if you ask them can i have a loan of 100 quid they'd say yes or no and there'd be no prevaricating around it and somebody with an indirect style like my mother she's so indirect like if you asked her for 100 quid she could answer yes, but she could give you a big long story about how she needs some money to get a taxi to go somewhere and her voice could go quite high and her body language would be thin. And she's actually saying no in about 40 different ways, <laughs> but her words are saying yes. And somebody with a direct style would just take the money. She said, yeah. And so that's yeah. where we have to realise that different styles. And I saw that a lot with um, teenagers and their parents, that they lost their way, not because they don't love each other, not because they don't mm. care, but because two styles were clashing badly. And one was maybe, for example, direct. One was more roundabout. And they didn't like the directness. Indirect people find direct people rude and abrasive and aggressive. Yes, yes, yes. And direct people find the indirect type wishy-washy, sly, a bit dishonest, a bit airy-fair. So they can really, and they can love each other, but like, oh, this is really annoying. Why didn't he just say no? I didn't know that's what he wanted. So that can happen again. So we go into, I go into that quite a lot. And then I also go into the way that some of us are verbal, like yourself and myself, and we can talk and feel so much better when we talk. (laughs) (laughs) Just need a good chat. And that's very nice for us. And there's a yes. whole other section of people who, who don't, who need physicality, mm. who might need a hot bath or the fire or their favourite dinner and a blanket over them. And actually talking about them, they don't have the words. It makes them feel uneasy. It makes them feel stressed. Mm. They can't find the words. They're actually, they're, they're swimming out of their water by talking about it. And we talkers, because mental health has just pushed its way in everywhere, we think, oh, it's good to talk. Everybody needs to talk. I just have to sit them down and talk about it. I'm like, not necessarily. I remember working with one kid and the mother was determined that the uh, the kid should talk about their problems. And what we found was actually what the kid needed was a really mellow kitchen when he came in from school with nice food, vibe, a real soft, kind of coming in from the tense world yeah. into a... A, a, a gentle vibe where there was nice music, very little chat, lovely food, completely different from. So tell me, what did they say? Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because that's. And then later on, maybe they could just say, oh, it was hard today. I don't want to get into it, but it was hard. And, you know, you might do a little. Honestly, some people don't feel better for talking, they feel better for physical. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I think, I mean, it's it's almost like part of the challenge when parents are trying to reestablish their relationship and and connect with their child. I think we, we as a, maybe it's a cultural thing, maybe it's our time period, but like we tend to think that the avenue for connection is talking. Yeah. But you're so right. There are a lot of different ways to connect and to feel like comfortable in the presence of someone, you know? And for some kids, talking is scary. It's intimidating. They're afraid of 
saying the wrong thing. They're afraid their parents are going to offer them solutions or they're going to criticize the way they handled it. Like, it could be a million things. And you're so right. They can't get the words out because that's not how their brain mm. goes. And they do better if they went for a run. Or if they had a bath, <laughs> they would actually do better if, if, in, in another direction. I think that's a, a kind of a bit of a revelation for some people. And it can be a bit of a re- liberation because they're like, I'm trying to get my child to talk. And I'm like, maybe that's not the way they operate. Maybe there's other ways to connect. Yeah, that's huge. This is so huge in the gender world. I mean, I I end up thinking about this a lot because a lot of parents think I'm trying to draw my kid out. I'm trying to make them tell me what's going on. And they literally don't know how or they don't even know what they're feeling. So I think this applies in lots of situations. Yeah, and I talk a bit about identity and, you know, the, the identity crisis that so many teenagers are having. Maybe it's because they have a lack of of kind of 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 roots in their identity or something but there's a feeling of there's a lot lack of who they are and where they're going you know that feeling of back in the day people kind of you had a limited number of jobs you were going to have you had a limited path that you were going to do but it gave you a strong sense of identity now it's much more wide open you could do anything you could be anything so I go into that and I go into gender I go into all that sort of part of it but very much in the bigger picture of there's lots of things attacking teenagers these days. There's lots of ways. And frankly, I I, I, ta- I gave a couple of chapters towards diagnosis and OCD and mm-hmm. autism. It's not like, I'm, like, obviously, if you wanted to know about autism or, or any of these subjects, you'd need to read much more books around it. But it's nice to have a little bit of an overview of, yeah, these things impact and they're still a whole person. There's still a whole group yeah. still trying to do their, you know, developmental milestones of adolescence, their half brain. And yes, maybe they do have autistic traits or OCD traits, but they also have lots of other challenges because we can, as you say, we can see them as a walking identity mm. when there's so mm. much more, you know. Can I ask like a process question? Oh, yeah. When you're when you're working on a book like this, that's specifically about parent teen relationships. And obviously you are a parent and you have teens <laughs> who live in your house. <laughs> um, do they do they know like what you're writing about? Do you talk about the book oh. with them? Um, I'm curious if like, does this also kind of bleed out of your <laughs> office and your desk into life? And what do your kids think? Um. I, I bore my husband to death <laughs> every day, in every way. Yes, he, he would hear a lot. <laughs> he would hear an awful lot about it. Up until this book, my kids were younger and they didn't hear much about it. And I've mm. always been very paranoid, like having a therapist, having me as a mother, it's it's a heavy burden. Like I'm really... <laughs> <laughs> you might have noticed Ash, I'm a bit intense <laughs> and so I, I've tried not to but I've noticed my, my older girl she's 15 she started asking me loads mm. of questions about psychology and um, that that's been a, a bit disconcerting for me I've you know, I've been less. Why? I've, Why is it disconcerting? Because I'm really, really conscious that I'm not mother of the year. I'm, I'm, I'm a good therapist. I know I'm a good therapist, but crikey, people can come to mothering much more naturally than I would come to mothering. I'm not, okay. I'm not, I'm not dissing myself, mm. but there's, you can be naturally. Some people are just naturally brilliant at mothering or fathering. You can see it in them, and some people it's, it's more brittle. It's more difficult, and I would be in that category but I do know I'm I'm good at psychology I do know I understand teenagers so I do know I have a lot to give to the situation but with my own kids I'm very reluctant to do any sort of I've got it sus because they'll say I know you (laughs) you have flaws mommy (laughs) do you know what I mean it's complicated it's not it's 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 complicated I think it's complicated for every therapist to have kids, I think we feel yeah. the burden of, well, you're supposed to know about well-being and I'm not happy. What What's going down here? Yeah, that's very hard. Well, that's where I get really into, well, hang on a second. This well-being, you know, yeah, 
we we have moments of well-being hopefully every day but like there's a lot of difficulty in life you wake up and you know there's we we a lot of us don't have the gift of happiness and a lot of us you know we 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 find meaning and purpose in life but well-being isn't you know a massive gift in our in our kind of toolbox mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. i i think it's difficult being the parent when you're a therapist i i bet though you are you are a great parent I, and i'm, I'm sure funny. that you make them laugh that's my that's the best thing. that's huge yeah. stella that's, that's huge my, that's my saving grace i can generally i mean if that. your kids enjoy being around you that is a huge win right yeah. like that's a big part of you know, you, you talk about this a lot, like bringing a little joy into our yeah. lives, laughter into our yeah. lives, like little moments of fun. I think that's a nice counter narrative to this idea of like achieving this like constant sense of meaning and purpose and joy. Yeah, like right. that's yeah. not real. Like yeah. we have to infuse life with moments of a giggle or you catch your daughter's eye and you wink yeah. or like something, you know, like those little things go such a long way, like yeah. pebbles in a barrel. I kind <laughs> of, uh yeah. I, I kind of, uh, the last chapter is, I, I call it the magic is in the repair. And I really, this is my probably most heartfelt chapter where sometimes we lose our way and, you know, the, the magic is in the repair in a relationship. And actually there's very few long-term relationships in our lives. We we, yeah. we put and run after a few years. We go to another yeah. friendship and another relationship. And so we have a very long-term relationship with our children and it's it's full of ups and downs and a kind of a very much kind of you bring yourself to the party, nobody else, you're good enough the way you are. And I, I really mean it like that you, what you've got to offer as a parent is more than anybody else because you're their parent. You've got that special place, which is daunting, yeah. but it's also gorgeous and beautiful. And you know that lovely line from Philip Larkin, the poet, I finish with that, what survives of us is love. And I I really think Mm. it does. I think, it. you know, if you love your kids and you're just your flawed self and you turn up rather than giving it away. Yeah, it's enough. But I, 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 I really feel parents feel they're not enough. And that's why I kind of wanted to write it. That's so beautiful. And that's so important. I mean, I think so many parents literally interpret the behavior of the teenager, like the rolling of the eyes, the slamming of the door, and they they take it literally. But actually, I think your book is saying making these little steps towards your child with love and care, like they actually want that and they need it. The, the uncooked brain doesn't always know how to express the needs, but kids need that. I mean, this is very much in line with like, hold on to your kids, which you yeah. you and I often recommend. I think your book is is very much like a practical kind of handbook for how to give your kids what they really need, which is just you. It's actually you. Yeah. It's not a therapist. It's you. Yeah. Yeah. Which oh. can feel... Almost in this world where everything is professional and get the professionals in, Ooh. it can feel almost arrogant to think I'm enough. I can. They've got a problem and I'm enough to solve it with them. Do, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? But I think it is. I think it's really important that we we empower parents to think I am enough. I care about them more than anybody else. I know them more than anybody else. Yeah. That's great, Stella. So people can find it where? Where can people find the book? All good bookshops. Um, Kenny's <laughs> Bookshop, if, if if you look up Kenny's Bookshop in Galway, they ship overseas. And then Amazon, of course, the mighty okay. Amazon has it. Yes. All, the, all the usual websites. And I think, oh, oh yeah, it's an audio book. I wanted to read the audio book, but I think they got put off by my Irish accent. <gasps> Oh my God, people love your accent. That was a foolish mistake on the publisher's <laughs> part. People love your voice, you. well, myself well, included. I think it should be, you know, and um, they had somebody else read the Fragile, my, my last book, Fragile. But anyway, it is on audio. I shouldn't do it. And actually, I got to pick the person's voice and it, it's lovely. Oh, you did? I did. It, it's not an Irish it person? It is an Irish like, voice, but it's not okay. as, as Irish as mine. <laughs> Okay, so then you can read the book or listen to you some can. imposter reading the book. <laughs> yeah, <two tomatoes laughs> on it. 
All right, Stella. Well, this has been really fun to kind of interview I you and hear that. about the book. I, I and I'm sure it's going to be. Oh, uh, you were great, <laughs> and I think it'll be a smashing success. Oh, Sasha. All right. We'll <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.